0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What is
1: happening, gang? We are live on the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Polling. And in today's episode, we're switching it up a little bit. So the last couple weeks, we've been looking at players who Bill was involved with who are actually in the Hall of Fame. In this week's episode, we begin our two-part look at making the case for two players who Bill was heavily involved with throughout their careers who definitely should be in Canton. So today, we're going to look at Steve Tasker. Next week, we're going to look at Reggie Wayne. This is part one of making that case. We're also going to look at sort of the special teams landscape as a whole, how special teams players have been evaluated, you know, historically from a Hall of Fame perspective. We're going to look at two interesting other options and Devin Hester and Brian Mitchell, and see if those guys meet the criteria for Bill to be Hall of Famers. But before we dive into today's show, I want to take a minute to talk about one of our favorite sponsors on the pod, Bet Online. If you're into sports betting, Bet Online is where you should go to win money today. Whether it's live bets during games or futures for who you think will win the championships, Bet Online has all the latest odds, news, and information for all your online sports betting needs. So visit the website today or use your mobile device to join and receive your 50% off welcome bonus on your first deposit. 50% off on your first deposit. So before we get to the next big game, head over to BetOnline and start playing today. All right, guys, this is fun. This is part one of our look at making the case for the Hall of Fame, and we're going to go deep into Steve Tasker. All right, here we go. We are live on the Inside Football Podcast. with Bill Polian, Rick has got a collar shirt on. His hair is combed. It's ten thirty in the morning. Something must be unusual. How are we doing today, guys? Uh, we're doing
2: well, Scott. I, you know, you know, you being such a a maven of style, yes. I figured it was time for me to up my game. As, as you stand there, you know, Scott doesn't have to worry about combing his hair. There's no collar anywhere near his shirt anywhere in the room. But okay,
1: go ahead. T- totally good. I, I might have slept in this shirt. So I don't know if you've heard, but apparently former NBA player Lamar Odom may be returning to professional basketball soon in Spain. I was reading a press release about how he started taking a pH-balancing alkaline supplement called Balance 7, and that's what helped him bounce back from his hospitalization in 2015. He even said, I have enormous amount of energy, which is good for me. It's important when working out. I always need energy to level up. Couldn't agree more with Lamar, and after watching him fight in that boxing match against Eric Carter in July... I think it's safe to say Balance 7 is working for him. Cool thing is, we've got a promotion running with Balance 7 right now, where if you go to their website, balance7.com, and use the code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V, at checkout, you'll receive a free four-ounce bottle of My Smooth Skin with any purchase of Balance 7 products. That product retails for $13.99, so I'd say it's worth it. Again, head to balance7.com and use the code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V, at checkout, to get in on the promotion. I know you will. If it worked for him, It can work for you too. All right. Well, today we we shift a little bit. So the last few weeks we've looked at, obviously, some of the Hall of Fame careers Bill has been a part of. Now we're going to begin to make the case. And so we're going to look at two particular players in the next two weeks, Steve Tasker and Reggie Wayne. And we're going to begin this week with Steve Tasker. But before we dive into Tasker, we've got to kind of set the stage and the environment for special teams in the NFL and how special teams players are viewed from a Hall of Fame standpoint. So without further ado, Rick, dive us in. Okay. Bill, let's, let's even start a little bit more basically.
2: You've touched on this in the past in, in different ways, but you know, talk about, if you would, within the, in the game of professional football, the importance of special teams and how they can change the outcome.
3: Well, professional football is about yardage and points. And I'm, uh, I'm borrowing from Bill Parcells here, it's, but it's one of the most basic tenets that he articulated, which I absolutely subscribe to. And I don't want to get into a metric argument because I'm the least qualified person to deal with math, and I hate it to begin with. So uh, the the, uh, the general, it, it, what, what is believed and what is true, what we know as football people are, are true, is that you know yardage accumulated field position if you will which is an old school term directly affects scoring so basically 7 to 10 yards depending upon it now it's 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 closer to 10 because of the uh, because of the nature of the passing game basically equals one point but let's let's go back to the old the, the old rule of thumb, and say, you now seven yards equals one point. Starting field position without question, no matter what metric, no matter what equation you use, starting field position leads to scores. So if you start below your 20-yard line, what we call the minus 19 down to the goal line, minus territory, the chances of scoring – Reduce dramatically for every yard past your 20. They increase. Um, The reason that we put the touchback rule in and moved it to the 25 yard line was to discourage kickoff returns. Um, Now, you know, for every action, there's uh, there's an opposite reaction. Coaches, Bill Belichick leading the way, a former special teams coach. Uh, decided that if you could pooch kick the the, the ball, a a dynamic pooch kick, which would come down somewhere between the goal line and the five yard line, you could uh, affect starting position. He's about, he's a Parcells, the original Parcells disciple. You're now, he's trying to kick the ball down to the two or three yard line, make you return it. And, uh, and as a result, have you start out at the minus seven minus eight somewhere in there and that reduces your ability to score dramatically over the course of a season it reduces it dramatically so special teams not only control points in terms of field goals and extra points if you kick them but in the punting game and now in the kickoff game where kickers have become so adept at doing all of these various types of kicks, you control field position completely. And a player, a coverage player, who can win consistently and who can affect field position because he can, he can maneuver his body to down the ball, he can make tackles in the open field. Um, he can avoid blockers at the line of scrimmage and create fair catches, is worth his weight in gold. And there are only two in the history of the game, since we know that the kicking game was not as important in the it, it, from about 1935 on until, oh, let's say, 1985. There are only two to think about. Slater, who's still playing with the New England Patriots, who plays no position. Uh, he, he doesn't have a position. Actually, I think they list him as a wide receiver or maybe a DB, but he never plays there. And Steve Tasker, who preceded him. There are only two. Right. Um, all others are pretenders. So, the that person, those two persons, are unique in the in the history of football. There were some guys who preceded them, wedge busters and things like that, you know, when the rules were different. But these two guys are in a class by themselves in terms of, of Pro Bowls in their career. Um, in Steve Tasker's case, MVP of the Pro Bowl, I think twice. Um, they, have, they change games. And, and, and essentially, if you think about it, what is the ultimate definition of a Hall of Famer? A guy who changes games a difference maker. If he's not a difference maker, then he better be a guy like Frank Gore with incredible longevity and incredible production. If he's not a difference maker, it's that simple. If you take away all the crap that surrounds and all the electioneering and all the nonsense that surrounds candidacies, is the guy a difference maker? Put another way, and I've said this in the room and, 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 uh, you know, I walked softly as a rookie last year, but I'll, I'll, i be a little, I'm, I'm going to be a little more vociferous this time around. I don't want to hear about stories. I don't want to hear what a great guy he was. I don't want to hear how he worked so hard to develop his craft. I don't want to hear any of that stuff. Tell me, did we have to game plan against him? Start there. And if the answer is no, then he's
1: not a Hall of Fame. Not on the list. Not on the list. Right. So, Bill. To that end, before we dive into uh, Steve in greater detail, in terms of sort of two Hall of Fame guys from a special teams perspective that come into my mind, and just to me, it's amazing how we haven't put more emphasis on this. Would be somebody like a Brian Mitchell or a Devin Hester, who it seems to me those are guys that you would have to game plan for, game plan plan for from a special teams perspective, and th- not in the Hall of Fame yet.
3: Yeah, without question. Uh, the, the only real return man that's in the Hall of Fame Dion is, 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 is a combination guy right uh, the, you know Dion didn't tackle, but he did everything else. The, the, the only real genuine return guy and, and, he, and he really he did he was also a great running back is Gail that, that, that there, there are really no other return people in the Hall of Fame. and, and why why was special teams including kickers, until John Stenerud was put in. Why were they neglected? Because there was a cabal of people among the voting uh, group who thought that special teams weren't important. And, and that's it. It's, that's just a very simple answer. So now more and more people recognize and more and more football people preach Starting with Marv Levy, by the way, and Vic Vic Vermeil, who was just uh, who's going to be elected this this coming uh, uh, January, um, began to. They were the first two special teams coaches in NFL history, and 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 they became successful head coaches and preached the gospel of special teams, which was carried on by Belichick and others, and 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 now special teams has become a, a you know a major factor in the game. So selectors have to, have to honor it. I mean, they can't, they simply can't ignore it and give it the back of their hands. So <clears throat> special teams players become, uh, become, uh, uh people who, uh, get consideration in, 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 in the case of Mitchell, he's got a really, he's got a really good case. He's got a really good case because he had longevity 14 years. He had outstanding production. He's on top of the list in both kick and return yardage. His, his non return yardage is negligible. It wouldn't qualify him under any circumstances. Uh, we'd have to look at Sproul's in relation to Mitchell, but Sproul's is more uh, smoke. Sp- is a little like Gail. You know, he's a mini version of Gale sayers he, right. he, you know, yeah, longevity. Gail didn't have longevity, but he's had longevity. He's got, ball handling skills, you know, he's runner, receiver, returner. He's a different cat. But Hester and Mitchell will be looked upon as strictly returners. And um, and I would give no credence and shout down, um, you, you know, what, 3,000 and some yards that were gained from scrimmage. That, that's not, it doesn't qualify him. Mean, we wouldn't even talk about him under those circumstances. So throw it out. There's no added value there. And so now you you you're comparing Mitchell, who played 14 years, and Hester, who played 11, relative to uh, uh, total yardage and, and and touchdowns and you know yards per kick. You start with the premise that they had to be game planned against, and I certainly can attest to that with respect to Hester in Super Bowl 41.
1: Yeah, we we know uh, that one well. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So, uh, they, they, they passed the first test. They had to be game planned against. They were difference makers who changed games. Now let's talk about what their production was relative to one another and no stories. We don't want to hear where they came from. We don't care who their high school coach was. You know, we don't care what they did in the community. None of that counts. So, that's how I would frame that argument, and 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 I will when the time comes. I'll I'll be I'll be pretty. I'll, you know, I started out as actually coach special teams in Canada, and started out at the college level coaching special teams. So I, I got a little background in it, and um, and that that's how I'm going to frame the argument.
2: You know, another way to to show how hard it's been for special teams to be recognized. Uh, is the fact that you know the more the more obvious the overt ones uh, are certainly kickers, and you know in all in, in the only guys out of the whole history of the league, you know who have made it in are George Blanda, who of course was as more to me a quarterback. You got Adam Vinatieri, you got Jan Stenerud, you got Stephen Guskowski, you got Gary Anderson, Jason Hansen, Jason Elam, and Matt Stover. Uh, so, and then the only punter is Ray God. So none of those guys are in, none of those guys are in. No. Yeah. What about the guys who it's obvious bill with kick with kicking and, and punting and so on and
3: so forth. Well, you got, you got, you got Jan. Who had a long career and held all the records for a period of time. You got his, his Morton. Who held all the records, surpassed all of Jan's records. And now you'll have Vinny, who has surpassed all of uh, uh, Morton's records. So the leading kicker of all time at the time he's eligible likely will get in. Right. Assuming he's had an outstanding clutch kicking record, which, you know, you could argue that Morton really didn't. But 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 he had, you know, really phenomenal statistics and and, uh, and and certainly was you know, good enough. And, and you know, Vinny holds the record for Super Bowls among kickers.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's got a resume that's it's hard to put up against anybody ever at any position. A kicker will probably won't be a
3: first ballot um, uh, selectee, um, but it won't be long after that. And it would depend on the year that Vinny's eligible, uh, you know, who else is on the ballot.
1: too? But the problem also that Vinny s- set forth is – how do you, how do you beat that? I mean, no one will. Yeah. I mean, it's just, this is
3: impossible. So what, yeah. you know, I, I I would argue that Hanson might have a good case, but he, he doesn't come near Vinny in terms of numbers and championships and all the rest of that. that's what the hall of Fame's all about. Right. Not yeah, everybody. Huh. Peter King once said, and it, it, it sounds, it sounds condescending, but I know he didn't mean it that way. A Hall of Fame is not the Hall of the Good. It's the Hall of the Great. And and there are a lot of good kickers. Baltimore's guy, when he's finished, yeah, will have a case. But there ain't a lot of Super Bowls there. And and you know, where will he be relative to Vinny when it when it's all said and done? I don't know. There's no one else to challenge it. Goskowski doesn't he's got Super Bowls, but but not not the neither the longevity nor the numbers. And uh and so you know vinny's for the time being or maybe for the foreseeable future vinny's the only one and that's probably the way
1: it should be yeah now he he's he might have locked the door
3: well
2: you know i i i i, I would make a a, a case for the guy who's now kicking in baltimore uh well we'll I mean, see he's still playing he's still playing got a ways to go all right i mean and okay I, we're, we're we're on track for something else
1: here so let's all right let's let's dive into tasker one one thing,
3: one thing we're not gonna do is anoint guys who are still playing. Right. Let's leave that, let's leave that to the broadcasters, okay? Let's let that go. <laughs> okay. We'll leave that to uh the
2: uh the sound machine that's out there. All right. Um, okay. So not now what I'm gonna say now is a little bit of a story, Bill, but it's just his background, okay? So Stephen J. Tasker was born on April 10th, 1962. He was, you know, initially overlooked when it came to his college days by all the big boys. So he began his football career at Dodge City Community College. After two years, he transferred to Northwestern. And here's the kind of athlete he was. After finishing his his football days there and before he was drafted in the NFL, he decided to sign up for the the Northwestern's rugby team. He had never played rugby before. And he ended up being voted the most valuable player in the Big Ten rugby league. So, I mean, the guy was really an amazing athlete. Uh, And he also still continues to hold Northwestern's all-time career return average on kickoffs. Um, So let's go back to the the 1985 draft. Uh, With the first pick in the round, the Bills selected Glenn Jones, a defensive back from Norfolk State. And with the very next pick, the Houston Oilers took Steve Tasker. As history will tell us, Norfolk State was the last place Glenn Jones ever played a a organized football game. And Steve Tasker was, well, Steve Tasker. Now, Bill, at that point, you were the Bill's pro-personnel director, so you had no role in that decision. So I feel comfortable in saying that the Bill's passing on Tasker for Jones uh, puts me in mind of something that uh, Blaine Nye, the erudite former offensive uh, guard for Stanford and Dallas once said, which was, it's not whether you win or lose, it counts. It's who gets the blame. <laughs> Bill, who screwed
3: up? How come they didn't take Tasker? Well, that, that's, that's an unanswerable question. You know, it, the, the draft doesn't work that way. If you could predict who going to turn out to be great you'd be paid zillions by uh, some NFL team to do it. It's just, it's just an unanswerable question. All right. Um, I knew a little about Steve Tasker, which I volunteered during the pre-draft process because I had been in the USFL with the Chicago Blitz. And, uh, and this is important in terms of how Steve ultimately got to the bills. Uh, Northwestern was one of our, um, protected schools, meaning that any player from Northwestern was automatically our property. So myself, John Butler, who was the, um, Blitz assistant personnel director. And later I was GM and John was the personnel director and Marv Levy, the head coach for whom we both worked. Um, knew a lot about Steve Tasker because we knew a lot about the Northwestern players. And we talked to Denny Green, who was then the coach we'd seen him play, et cetera. Um, and he was five. Uh, I'm being charitable here. 510 185. Um, so not a guy that, you know, <laughs> would jump at you with height, weight. He did have speed. There's no question about that. He ran fast. And, and he had really great quickness, and was a great collegiate player. But not somebody that you know in those days, particularly if it, if a personnel department didn't value special teams, uh, and and there were no slot receivers, uh, you would say to yourself, you know, wh- where's this guy play? You know, what does he do for us? Um,
1: that Matt Slater question.
3: Yeah. At a later time in in, in, in Steve and and in, in our careers, Mark Levy and I thought differently. So <laughs> it turned out differently. But at that time, you no, know, it was not a guy that you'd give heavy consideration to.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So he ends up uh, spending uh, the, the, that 85 season uh, there uh, at Houston. And they cut him before the 10th game uh, of the 86 season. And you're the, you are the GM of the Bills at this point, and that's when you took him. Given everything you knew at that point, in your mind, were you – and he played really no wide receiver while he was in Houston. Um, had you already made the decision that this was somebody in your mind who could help on special teams and was worthy of a, a roster slot there or did the was it still sort of a special teams uh, – General offensive player kind of thing.
3: No, no. Um, we we had a, a very specific role in mind for him, and and here's the background of it. Um, Marv, of course, had studied him closely when he was um, when we were all with the Blitz. So we knew Steve well. Uh, he was a player we really liked. We would have um, had the league, had the USFL gone forward. It's likely that he would have signed with the Blitz thanks to our former president and went under but uh, um, <laughs> and went dark, and then subsequently went under. So there was no place for him to sign, but he would have signed with the Blitz without question. Probably been the first guy they'd signed. So um, we, the three of us, John Butler, Bill Polian, and Marv Levy, knew him well and loved him. We were, the Bills were getting ready to trade for Pete Metzeler as a tight end who had been in, who was in Seattle and uh, the week before we were going to consummate the trade uh, my boss, Norm Pollum sent me to see Seattle versus Houston in Seattle in the preseason to make sure that, uh, that Pete Metzler got through the game healthy before we consummated the trade. He wanted eyes on him to be sure that, that he was going to be healthy in the course of seeing that game, I saw for the first time, Steve Tasker doing the National Football League uh, for Houston, what he did for us for all those years. So I put a big red line under his name in right. the, uh, on my right. flip card and, uh, and put in a report which basically said, if he comes on the wire, let's claim him for sure. And, and maybe let's think about trading for him. Now, Hank Buller wasn't interested in trading for him, but at some point in time, I thought he was certainly well worth a waiver claim. He also played some receiver in that game and did well. I mean, he, he was quick. He could get open. He had really good hands, all that stuff. So um, I come back. Pete makes it through the game fine. We make the trade, and, um, and now Steve goes on injured reserve during the 86 season. And, um, and now in those days, if a player was on injured reserve for a period of time, six weeks, I think it was, um, you could bring him back. Number one, you could practice him when he was healthy. And number two, you could bring him back as long as uh, uh, you know uh, he went through waivers. So there was an unwritten rule that said you don't play claim a guy coming off injured reserve. You know, you just don't do it. And everyone was well aware of it. It wasn't cricket, really. right? So Steve Tasker on a Friday, I believe, which is when you wave guys that so you're trying to get through, you don't want anybody else to claim them, and they probably won't because they've got their roster set and, you know, the game plan's in and the coach doesn't want to hear about a claim and blah, blah, blah. Right. Steve Tasker pops up on the waiver wire. It's in, as I recall, in late October or early November. In November, yeah. And so I see his name. John Butler was was out scouting, I think. I see his name, and I take my copy of the waiver wire and head down the hall, and it was probably a 25-yard difference between my office at one end of the building and Marv's on the other. And we meet in the middle because Marv's coming to my office with the same wave of wire. (laughs) 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 And he said, you see the asker's name? I said, yeah. He's claiming. claim I said, okay. (laughs) I was coming to ask you the same thing. uh, Yeah. (laughs) So uh, we put the claim in and we got him. And the general manager of the the Oilers, Mike Holovac, who was one of the great people that God ever put on this earth was so furious with me for making the claim <laughs> that he called me and really ripped me. And for Mike Holovac to rip someone, I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You pretty, you had, you better be in Charles Manson's you know? lake. <laughs> As a, you had to be at the top of the bed guy. Yeah. But, yeah. And, and I felt terrible. <laughs> I felt terrible because I had such high regard for, for, for Mike, but I, I said, Mike, Look, at, we're at the bottom of the barrel. I'm sorry. I know what the unwritten rule is. I know what you're not supposed to do, and, and I know you're mad. But we don't. You know, we're trying to we're, we're trying to survive here.
1: Trying to win three games. Yeah. I'm trying to win four. I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah. We're trying
3: to win three games once. <laughs> yes. In in four years. You know. <laughs> and, and so he was mad. He hung up the phone, and then the following winter at the at the league meetings following spring at the league meetings he came over to me and apologized i said you didn't need to apologize for god's sake you had every right to rip me and he said well one thing's for sure you got a great player <laughs> and and so steve shows up he drives from he wasn't going to play in the game that weekend that's for sure because it was late in the week so we called him and said he said can i drive up and i said yeah sure So he drove and he drove up in a Volkswagen bus, which uh, which was, uh, you know, semi psychedelic (laughs) at a time. Now, we have younger listeners who won't recognize that term or even know what it's describing. It's coming
2: back, Bill. No, I think it (laughs) will. Bill's making a reference to the merry pranksters who drove that Volkswagen bus cross country. And you can listen to the name
3: Jack Kerouac.
1: Everything that's old is new again. There's a whole new psychedelic generation, Bill.
3: Okay. Well, it was semi psychedelic as I remember, and it was old and beat up. That was for sure. And so he pulls into the parking lot and if I'm not mistaken, the, the the guard called my office and said, there's a guy down here that says he's a player and he's here to talk to you. I said, well, who is it? What's his name? Said, it, it's Tasker, but it, 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 this guy's not a player. He's <laughs> it, like a guy. I said, yeah, okay, I'll be right down." <laughs> <So, laughs> I came down and I said hello and his wife, Sarah, got out of the car. Now, how many years ago it is? I do know it's close to... It's 40, at least, I guess. Yeah. Sarah Sarah doesn't doesn't look 35 today. She looked about 14 then. (laughs) (laughs) And he introduced me to her. Years later, I kidded him about it. I said, have you ever heard of the Mann Act? And he said, no, I don't think so. And I said, that's the first thing that came to my mind. There's a law in New York State that said, you cannot you cannot transport underage females <laughs> uh, across state lines, across straight lines. And I thought, oh my God. It's a good thing a state trooper didn't pull this guy over. They would have to produce their marriage certificate. But, um, but Sarah is a, a wonderful person. And, and as I say, to this day, the youngest looking person I've ever come across, but, and she, and that's the way she looked then. Um, so Here's, here's this 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 young couple joining our team and uh, and and of course Marv knew exactly 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 how he wanted to use Steve and as time went on he, he he exceeded even Marv's expectations. as time went on, even though he worked out with the wide receivers, he went through all the wide receiver drills and everything was listed as a wide receiver. Marv wouldn't play him in a game because he was too afraid of getting him hurt and losing him on special teams. And the same is true of returns when the game was on the line and we had to catch a punt or needed a punt return to set up field position in a big, important game. He would use Steve to do that, but not as the regular punt return because he did not want to get him hurt. And, the late Nick Nicolau, God rest his soul, the receiver coach, was so annoyed that that he he couldn't use Steve as a receiver. He would almost ignore him in the drills, and he'd always <laughs> grouse about it. <laughs> he said, "I don't know why I got this guy. I can't even use him in drills." <laughs> and Marv wouldn't budge. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but Steve became a. Um, A unicorn to use today's phrase. There was no one like him in the game. Baltimore had a kid that was in the Canadian League uh, briefly and then came down, whose name escapes me. Got, got, you know, he's a contracted ALS and and had a short career. Um, Steve Gleason? No, not Steve Gleason. No, Steve's another story entirely. Um, We drafted Steve. (laughs) Um, And I I forget whether it was or signed him as a free agent. I I forget. It it, went Buffalo, I think. Um, or may, maybe Carolina, but, oh, um, uh, OJ Bergan, OJ Bergan, OJ Bergan, OJ Yeah. OJ Bergan was the closest that came closest to Steve, but, but, you know, unfortunately developed the disease and had a short career, but beyond that was not quite as good as Steve. Steve could do everything on special teams and he was pound for pound, the greatest athlete on our team. Now, his nickname was Sevi, as in Seve Ballesteros, okay. because he could drive the golf ball longer than anybody on the team. He had the best short game of anybody on the team. He could do anything yeah. athletically. I've told this story a hundred times, but it bears repeating. Three or four years forward, when he had established himself as a star in the National Football League, he was doing a commercial. And he now represents a, a, a Ford, a series of Ford dealerships in Western New York with West her Ford being the most notable one and, and has since his playing days, but this was for some uh, another company and the, and the, and the commercial involved him doing a standing backflip and landing on his feet. And I, 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 to this day, I can't remember what the tagline was, but they were filming it in June during vacation time. And, um, so I'm in my office and uh, and I get a call again from security. There's a bunch of people out here doing a commercial and they've gone well over time. So I said, well, who's involved? Well, we, you know, security people didn't know and our security director wasn't there. It was vacation. So I said, all right, I'll come down. So I, I went downstairs and it's Steve and they've got the whole thing set up at midfield and Okay, let's do a take. And they do the take, and he does the backflip and lands on his feet. Not good enough. They do another take. They do another take. And now I'm saying to myself, I don't care about the equipment. I care about the best special teams player in football.
1: Doing 45 backflips. Yeah.
3: yeah. (laughs) I I, I went over to the director, and I said, what's going on? Well, this is a commercial, and he's got to do these backflips. And I said, yeah. But you know what? We're paying him a hell of a lot more than you are. Why? Why is he? Why do you have to have all these takes? Well, we have to get it right. He was a director, of course, right? Yeah. So, I said, Steve, how many of these have you done? He said, I don't know, twenty or so. I said, That's enough. I said, <laughs> I said to the Director, you, you want know more if it's not good enough? To hell with it. Exactly. He may have been the director, but you were the producer. So he, he, said, <laughs> he said, he said. Steve said, no, no, that's good. I'm okay. So he did like four or five more. Can you imagine someone doing 20 to 25 standing backflips? <laughs> I mean, it's not possible, but those are, that's why these athletes, I mean, they other, the 0.001% in the national football league, they can do these things. So uh, it's, it's like Steph Curry, you know, shooting from the third row in a in, in court side and making, yeah. you know, 10 out of 10 that, they can do things that human beings can't. So, uh, uh, just a, a, an inside about his his athletic ability, which was second to none on the team. Uh, it, it, at the, in those days, the the, the Buffalo Sabers had um, the French Connection line, and and every one of the French Connection golfers were, was, were players were great golfers, and uh, and so. There was a celebrity charity golf circuit around Western New York that, you know, many of us part, participated in during the spring and, and early summer before camp. And, and and you know, he raised a lot of money for great charities because both teams were hot at the time. And uh, um, I think it was, I'm trying to think of the name of the guy, Rick, um, it, it's immaterial. They, there would always be a long drive contest and the winners, there would always be somebody who was a non-athlete who thought that he was the, you know, the biggest guy in town at the club, right? At the host club. Yeah. So they'd get the long drive champion, the whole, the Hurst, the, the 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 whole club. And he would go against Steve Tasker, Pete Metzelaars and two of the guys from the French connection. <laughs> 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 And six out of seven times, Steve would win. I bet. And and so that that showed you, I mean, he was an un, absolutely unique athlete. In terms of what he did for us, A, did you have to game plan against him? Yes. He didn't play a half a season before everyone in the league was double-teaming him on, on punt coverage. And we would often move him around, put him in motion, things like that, so they couldn't double him. But even when he was double, he would routinely beat double teams. Routinely. Uh, You know how people these days, the rule is you can't run out of bounds to avoid a double team and then come back in and make the play? Right. He never had to go out of bounds. He would just juke the guys out of their shoes or run and explode right through them. And he was a devastating open field tackle. On kickoff coverage, he could not be blocked. I can't. I don't know that they kept statistics, but I doubt that, that anybody came close to him in tackles on kickoffs. And he was adept, absolutely adept, at causing fumbles by returners. In you know, untold amount of fumbles that he caused, that he tomahawked out of there because he was able to put his hat right on the ball or he was able to tomahawk it out. He saved touchdowns because of his speed. He was not a safety man, but if if, if, the, if the play got out the other side, he would he would track it down. But we had coverage patterns, both on punts and kickoffs, that no one ever saw before because we'd run them across the whole field. He'd start off at, at L3 and end up at R1 because there was a tendency to return against him, and he, he'd make the play. I mean, we'd actually create a hole for him so he could make the play. He changed games. Marv constantly, constantly, constantly practiced every day or every other day in training camp and once a week during the regular season in blocking kicks. I won't go into the whole technique, but he had a unique technique and a unique way of doing it based on geometry, which I – well, I'll, I'll finish this thought and get to the story. You had to block the kick at the point where it exited the kicker's foot, the kick point, so-called block point, which was two and a half yards or three yards depending on the stride of the kicker that we would measure it every week from his alignment point. And you had to block it off his foot. You could not block it in the air. It's not possible. You can't do it. Marv had done studies on it. So you had to come at the block point not the kicker to avoid roughing the kicker. We never got a roughing a kicker penalty. Right. And you had to extend your hands through the block point, through the block point. So if you put your hands together, thumbs together, right. Index fingers together, your arms at your side, you then shot your arms forward and down toward the ground. It's completely, it's, it's, it's completely um, what's, what's the word I'm searching for here. Non-traditional. Right. Most people think I block the kick by putting my hands up. No, you block your, your kick by putting your hands down. It's an unnatural thing. You have to learn. Yeah. You don't do it that way. Even in the colleges today, they don't know how to teach it. At the, at the, at the best colleges, they don't know how to teach it and, and you have to work on it. And Marv had drills where we, you know, we would do it with, 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 with um, little beach balls and things like that. So the players would get used to being, having dexterity in their hands so that the ball, when you blocked it, went back toward the other team's goal line and not out of bounds. So Steve could do all of that. He not only could get around the corner, in some cases, a double team to get to the block point. He was always at the right block point. And he had the touch of a tennis player in blocking the kick. Wow. Yeah. He could direct the ball. Unheard of, and no, there's no one that's ever done it since, in 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 my, uh, in my understanding. So, these were skills that no one else had. Now, do Hall of Fame selectors care about that? No, they care. They don't want to hear me talk about that any more than I want to hear them talk about stories. So, <laughs> you, you, you now, they, 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 the selectors don't understand technique, and they're bored by by and large. So uh, the what's left in in the selection process is how many Pro Bowls did he make at a time when only the players and coaches voted on the Pro Bowl? It's not seven, seven in how, how long a year career, 14-year career? Right, yeah, and then seven All-Pros. And seven All-Pro where there's only one guy chosen, seven All-Pro, and two Pro, pro Bowl MVPs. MVP the game because he controlled the special teams in an environment where in the pro bowl, there are no special teams players except him and guys that don't do it. Right. It was no contest. Absolutely no contest. They had to tell him you can't block every kick. Don't do it. So uh, you can't block every punt. So there was no one like him and there's been no one like him since. Slater does not have the, 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 the blocking, as good as he is, does not have the kick-blocking uh, expertise that Steve had. You know, I mean, Bill, you, you know, when you think about it, you know,
2: and I'm, and I'm, I'm glad I, I only had to start this, and there were a lot of questions I asked that you answered on your own. But when you think about it, what have you described? Extraordinary athletic ability extraordinary intelligence like you said about understanding the geometry of the game and the angles a tremendous work ethic where he practiced his craft to be to be better than even what he was just naturally given you know and an ability to do things that basically nobody else could do so if that does not qualify somebody for the hall of fame even though there aren't maybe the stats that you can cite you know for some of the other positions, I don't know what, what does. I mean, it, so this really, again, just calls into question, this is the greatest special teams player of all time. Does the greatest special teams player of all time deserve to be in the pro football hall of fame?
3: Yes. Yeah. I, I don't think there's any question about it. And then the seven all pros are what clinch it. So there's no other argument other than, well, he's just a special teams player. And so you have to vote based upon whether you think that's an important part of the game or not. And, and I would, uh, you know, when the time comes, I think, you know, I've got to make the argument along with Marv and Tony and others that really know the game, that this was a guy who changed games. And they were I wish Al Davis were alive to speak to it because he would often tell me, you know, that Tasker, uh, that Tasker, he drives us nuts. You know? <laughs> uh, Bill Parcells uh, talks about it frequently. You know, there is no question that that those that had to play against him knew that they had to play game plan against him. And in most cases, they, you know, they weren't um, terribly successful.
2: Yeah. Uh, just, you know, so, you know, uh, Scott normally does this at the end of the show, but, uh, you know, if anybody wants to question this, send us your questions. But no one's going to come up with, I don't care who you are, no one, to me, is going to be able to come up with any kind of a cogent argument to say that Steve Tasker is not a Hall of Famer. Uh, Scott, you got something to say about that?
1: No, I mean, I, I, I would not disagree. I mean, I think the, the other thing is just, and we didn't talk about this, but just the mental toughness it takes to do what Steve was asked to do and to do it well at his size. is. Have you been around people that are tougher than Steve?
3: Oh no, no, no! We haven't even—that's a good point. We haven't even talked about that. You're talking about a guy. If there are, let's say, five punts, and, and but by the way, he was on kickoff return too. <laughs> often not as a returner, but as a as a blocker. Oh yeah. And, and and let's say five to six kickoffs in a game, and and then however many extra points and field goals. You're talking about close to twenty plays a game, maybe more, that are high-speed car
1: crashes. The most violent collisions. The most violent
3: collisions. We put in a rule to do away with kickoff returns because the the injury rate on kickoffs was twice, was three times as high as any other scrimmage play. So he's doing this for 16 games a season and, and then three more or four more playoff games virtually every year of his career uh, without, uh, you know, without ever missing a game, I can't remember him ever
1: missing a game. What, what was his preparation like though? I mean, I know we've talked about this with Bruce and some other guys, but to be able to do this physically, what, with his athletic gifts, what, what did his off season and training regime look like? Well, he was
3: a dedicated worker, dedicated worker. I can't remember any specific Uh, any specific uh, uh, training regimen that he followed. Although he, I mean, he did everything that Rusty Jones wanted him to do, which was specifically prescribed for him. Rusty did individual um, at a time when strength and conditioning was, was in its infancy. Rusty was miles ahead of everybody else in terms of individual workouts and things like that. But um, he was just such a natural athlete that things came easy to him that no one else could do. I
1: mean, who can can do a standing backflip and land on your feet? But then to do it 40 times, I mean. Yeah, yeah. You don't do that in the Olympics. But the muscle (laughs) endurance, I mean, there's a lot of guys who are strong for a short period of time, but to have that level of muscle endurance, that's got to be second to none.
3: Yeah, and if I'm exaggerating, it was 20, it's still incredible, you know?
2: It's it's. Uh, Bill and I went back and watched. We talked about his size too. I mean, I know he's listed at five nine one eighty, but when I kind of looked at him versus other players who're pretty well, I mean, that was generous. It seemed to me. No,
3: I think that's. I think that's about right. I think. Yeah, that's about right. Well, he's not a big
2: guy, though.
1: He's no, no, big, absolutely not.
2: No. So, he, and he's putting his body up against a lot bigger guys. Right. So. uh
1: and I mean, I think the other thing we didn't touch on is, and I mean, this is something I miss as a fan every week. I mean, Steve was a phenomenal broadcaster. Oh
3: yeah, of course, yeah, absolutely. Who,
1: who, you know, got a kind of a raw deal. Who should still be on Sundays? Well, I think he does. I think he
3: does um, um, some work for CBS still.
1: Yeah, but, um,
3: but yeah, he was a great broadcaster. Brought great insight, but he's so he's so low key and self-effacing that. Well, he doesn't, he doesn't seek the limelight. Um, he's not out there saying, look at me. You know, he's just, if you asked him, he's just a guy doing his job. He just did it better than anybody else in the world.
1: Well, and how much of that, so, I mean, this is an interesting Hall of Fame question. Because if you look at kind of the list of the consensus, you know, top 10, top 15 guys who aren't in the hall, who people think should be in the hall, they're, they're kind of guys like Steve, you know, the cliff branches of the world who might get in, you know, this next go around or, you know, the, you know, the Brian Mitchell's of the world, or the Joe Jacoby's of the world. These are not huge self promotion promoter kinds of people. How much do you think that's hurt Steve in the hall of fame process?
3: Well, I think it's much more the bias against special teams players. And now as time has gone by, the the selectors many of the selectors don't even remember or have a clear vision of seeing him play so um and then there's there is a significant minority a vocal minority of people who say you lost four super bowls you got too many guys in already um okay yeah well that makes a lot of sense
1: that's a phenomenal yeah. argument well i mean it,
3: it's look you know selectors have a right to their opinions um they they may not be you may not agree with them, but that I mean that's out there so
1: that one feels more like alternate facts to me yeah exactly I mean
2: right exactly write your own opinion not to your own facts i mean if there are that many great players on the bill first of all and I have to say this again uh, the thing that they're holding against somebody that team made four straight super Bowls. No one's ever done that. That doesn't, That's not a negative against those guys.
3: That's, that's an extraordinary accomplishment. But that's not the way, especially today, the world of the media views it. If you lose the Super Bowl, you are an afterthought. You're not, it's strange because in baseball, going all the way back to the Dodgers in the fifties, the pennant winner, in the individual league who played in the world series was considered a pennant winner. You had a ceremony to raise the pennant, the league championship You were a champion. Yeah, you were a champion. And even though you lost the world series and I think the Dodgers may have lost seven straight, if I'm correct, before 1955 when they beat you. Yeah. And they, they were still considered an outstanding team. A really great team, and they were a dominant team in the national uh, National League with many, many exactly tremendous Hall of Fame players. Thanks.
2: Exactly, nobody's saying that Duke Snyder doesn't deserve the Hall of Fame or Jackie Robinson
3: or Pee Wee Reese or Roy Campanella. No,
2: no. So sorry to me, Bill. I'm. Uh, you're. I think you're being too kind. That's. I think that's an absurd, absurd argument. And I, this is my opinion. I have a right to my opinion too, and I think their opinion is idiotic. Well,
3: all I'm saying is the facts are that there is a school of thought now among media that if you lose the Super Bowl, you are an afterthought. Yeah, you're a loser. In the case of the Kansas City Chiefs, they're not quite losers, but, you know, what's all the, Tampa Bay, you lost, you get go away. And for those of you that have not seen Four Falls of Buffalo, uh, ESPN 30 for 30, you should watch it. It's interesting. By the time we got to the fourth Super Bowl, the vast majority of media and fans were sick of us. I wasn't there; I'd left. By, you know, I was fired after the third Super Bowl. They were sick of us, um, but we were we were the dominant team in the uh, in the uh, AFC without question. Yeah. And interestingly, we lost. In those four Super Bowls, to Dallas twice, Washington once, and famously the New York Giants in wide right in Super Bowl 25, who were along with San Francisco, the dominant teams in the NFC. Were there more dominant teams in the NFC? Yes. There was really only Denver and ourselves in the in the uh in, and Miami, but Miami's star had, had begun to wane by the time we went to the four Super Bowls. We did beat them in a championship game, but they they still, they weren't as dominant as they once were uh, with the 72, you know, the undefeated teams and what have you. Right. The strength was in the NFC, but it was among those four teams. The NFC had, uh, had Tampa Bay and even, even people, even the, the columnist in Buffalo after the loss to Dallas in the third Super Bowl, said, I don't want to go back again. I'd rather be, I'd rather be Tampa Bay. And, and I lost my mind. I mean, I was, in fact, I had left by that time, but I, I, I I think I wrote a letter to the editor or I went on somebody's show and just said that, that, you know, this is (laughs) un-American.
1: What are we doing here? And if not for Jeff Hostetler, holding onto that ball, that whole thing could be different. And maybe we don't go back.
3: The the, the bottom line is the Super Bowl is one game, and it's kismet. A lot of times, you know, we were not the better team against the Washington Redskins. That much I will tell you. I'll concede that without question. The other three could have gone either way. And and so the, the bottom line is that in the Super Bowl anything can happen but there is a mindset that says if you lose the Super Bowl, get out
1: of the way. You know, you didn't have a great season. You brought it up, so I feel like I sort of have to ask this question. That 91 Redskins team is a top five all-time team, right?
3: Uh, well, I don't rank them, but I, it certainly was a dominant team. It was a great team. Great team, yeah.
1: I mean, that, that was a scary team to play, right? Yeah, it was. hmm mm-hmm. Well, there we go. Uh, well, there he goes. I I feel like everybody always has that team like in the mid teens or the twenties. I'd like to see that team play a couple of the all time greats.
3: They they you know they they were a better team than we were that much. I, I can tell you, no question about that. And that'll happen every every now and then. I mean, we were a better team than the Bears when we played them and, and won in Super Bowl forty one. Um, so, you know, but but the bottom line is that. Steve, I think suffers from some of that. Plus, now voters are younger and they don't remember it. They don't remember it.
2: And the special teams bias. Yeah, there yeah. too.
1: Hopefully, this will shed a little bit of light onto Steve, and we can right maybe this wrong in the next few years. All right. Well, Rick, I think you got an audible. I do have an audible. Uh, Bill, uh, there's sort of a general
2: premise. Question here, and then I am going to uh, call our attention to another guy who I think deserves to be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, They call it the Pro Football Hall of Fame, uh, and and as uh, you explained to me off air, uh, we don't include Canada because we, you know, they have their own Hall of Fame and so on. But there have obviously been players who played in other leagues, uh, like uh, the old uh, AFL, the USFL, etc., who. Uh, played either a majority or, or all their careers in who are not in In fact the only person who never played in the NFL among modern players who's in uh, is Billy Shaw who's played for the bills. Bill, I want to bring up the name Cookie Gilchrist To me in my mind and I'm not even going to say statistics or anything but I was a little kid when I watched him but I mean he was so much bigger than everybody wasn't seemed to me in terms of running backs fast. Uh, he, he ran, you know, you know, with bad intent, uh, he, he kicked for them. He, uh, both field goals and, uh, extra points. I mean, to me, he was a dominant, dominant player. He was a great running back.
3: Does he deserve to be in the hall of fame? Well, I don't know that I'd answer. I, I, I don't know that I can say whether he deserves or doesn't deserve to be in. First of all, he was a, 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 a latter day Marcus Dupree, came right out of high school and went to the Canadian League and was a force in the Canadian League. But before that, Paul Brown tried to get
2: him out of high school into the NFL and the NFL shot him down.
3: Yes, the NFL would not give him any eligibility. So he went to Canada instead and became a force in Canada. And then in 1960, when the AFL was born, uh, the Buffalo Bills signed him, and he became a star in Buffalo for a Buffalo Bills team that won an AFL championship. and And the the tagline was "Looky, looky, here comes Cookie." He was a he was a genuine, genuine star. Uh, <clears throat> and then. Uh, in a situation that repeated itself with Joe Cribbs at a later time, um, he asked for a new contract. Uh, I don't know what the particulars were. I never spoke with Mr. Wilson about it. I've spoken with lots of his teammates, including Jack Kemp, who was who believes like you that he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Believe the late Jack Kemp, um, and um, so he left the Bills and went back to Canada and and i'm sure he's in the cfl hall of fame um but because his career in the afl was relatively short uh as opposed to billy shaw who played a long time in the afl every year of the afl uh or george blanda who played every year of the afl it it, it he's not a consideration i mean he's he's kind of a People even think about him. He's an afterthought. He was never considered as part of the, uh, you know, the 100 greatest players of all time, for example. So uh, he's not really on anybody's front burner. And and because the CFL has its own Hall of Fame, which, by the way, Marv Levy will be going into this coming December at the Grey Cup in Hamilton. Who thought who would have thought that Marv Levy, who won four great cups in in, in Montreal was not in the Hall of Fame right I, I didn't know that. right I didn't know it either until they called me and said would you please help you know on his candidacy um so the bottom line is that the CFL has its own Hall of Fame so unless the player comes in, and reestablishes his identity as a, as a candidate, a bona fide candidate in the NFL, he really doesn't have a chance. Flutie being the perfect example of that. Doug Flutie had a really nice career in the NFL, uh, but not a Hall of Fame career. And, and he did have a Hall of Fame career in Canada. So um, that, that's just the nature of things. That's the answer.
1: There you go, Rick. That's how the cookie crumbles. Oh. Know. Oh, <laughs> oh night. Ah, ah.
3: There
1: we go. Oh, oh well. That is a
3: bad one to end on. Yeah. Bill, are we are we gonna even talk to Scott next week? I don't know. You have another audible that we can, that we can escape from that one. <laughs> I think we, we,
1: we, put my, uh, many Brian Mitchell, uh, questions we get all the time at the front. So,
3: uh, well, let me, let me, let me end on that. So we don't end on the worst of all. All right. Um, so here we,
1: here, here we go. Here we go. So is Brian Mitchell a hall of famer? Yay or nay? He certainly is a viable candidate
3: and, and Devin Hester is now eligible this year. And so that discussion, I think, will take place. I think that will take place. And from my own personal point of view, um, taking nothing away from Hester, I don't think you're going to get two returners, guys who are principally returners in the hall anytime soon. So, I I mean, my choice would be Mitchell, I think. And the numbers tell you that.
1: Well, I think that's a happy one to end on. So hopefully. Sometime in the next few years, we will have B. Mitch in the Hall of Fame, which would make all of us very happy. All right. Well, if you like buns, Get ready because we've got more for next week as we <laughs> dive into Reggie Wayne and we make the case, which I think is going to be a pretty easy one, but it'll be interesting to see Bill's take on a lot of subjects in terms of wide receiver criteria and those kinds of things, which we haven't gotten into. So if you've got any questions for us, hit us up on Twitter at Polling, and we'll be sure to include it. Hey, Rick, you go go use that haircut well today. All right, man. I'll, uh, I'll, anybody you want me to cheer for it in the BMW, Scott? I just—I would like you just to be safe. That—that's all, all right. I care. I'll, I will do that. Thank <laughs> you, Tony. See now, won, so I don't have to. I, he
3: broke—he broke his maiden, so exactly. We're good. All yeah.
1: is right with the world. All right. Well, uh, have fun and uh, get ready for a really fun one next week. As we get into Wayne. Thank you, guys. All right. Thank you, fun. Take care. Take care.